This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Then the spirits started following me home. Orbs would bounce off their curtains, or I saw the shadow man a couple of times. One time was in our home. In the middle of the night, I had to go to the bathroom, and I kept the lights off because I didn't want to acclimate to the light. And when I opened the door, when I was coming out of the bathroom, I thought my son, I smiled like, oh, ha, ha, okay, you scared me. You're standing at the doorway here. But it didn't move. So then I put my hand out, and it went right through the spirit. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. For nearly nine years, Donna Francourt was a deputy coroner who worked medicological death investigations, which are those involving suspicious, violent, unexplained, or unexpected deaths, lacking access to structured debriefings. Frankfurt turned to journaling as a way of privately unpacking the profound grief she faced and preserving her own mental well-being. As she did, she found herself in a conundrum of perplexing relationships with both the living and the dead. With her book, I've Seen Dead People, she shares her unfiltered thoughts and emotions as she navigates a world most of us cannot imagine, a world Francourt was drawn to out of a genuine desire to help others during their darkest hours. Hey, Donna, how are you? Welcome. Well, hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, this is a world that most of us have no concept of your previous work as a a deputy coroner. First of all, what does a deputy coroner do? What a deputy coroner does, now there's either coroners or there's deputy coroners. Coroners are elected officials, at least in the state or where I live. Deputy coroners are hired and sworn in. And what we do is we are called out to any unwitnessed, suspicious, or unexpected death. We get to the death scene. Of course, the, um, you know, if it's, if it's definite that the person has died, 
we are then paged out. The police are already on site. The fire department has been there. And so once we arrive, then we will uh, pronounce the time of death. We will examine the body. We will draw fluids for toxicology, whether it's blood, urine, or vitreous. Vitreous is from the eye. And then that's sent in for toxicology. And we determine whether there's going to be an autopsy. If we do believe that there is something suspicious to rule that out, we notify the uh, next of kin, take photos, uh, bag and tag the body, help to transport the body to whether it's the morgue or a funeral home. And we also attend autopsies. Right. Now, your entree into this whole field is quite interesting because your your background was in, in government travel. So how did you get from government travel into becoming a deputy coroner? That's quite a journey. <laughs> That's quite a difference, isn't it? I had gone through a divorce in the early 2000s, and we had younger sons, two sons, and I want, I had had a little bit of medical background, uh, not a lot, but like certified nursing assistant. I'd worked with a couple of nephrologies at what, uh, nephrologists at a couple of, uh, clinics. I had worked up at a local hospital on the neurosurgical floor as a clinical technician. So when I went through the divorce and our sons would be spending weekends with their dad, I thought, what can I do that's going to be constructive, that's going to help the community? And I had heard uh, uh, a coworker that was also involved with a, a victim crisis response team that worked with five police departments in the area. It was all on a, you know, you'd have a pager, and then whenever you're available, you would be paged out to calls ranging from anything from domestic abuse to up to death. And so I thought that would be perfect. That'll be something that I can help the community. It's a volunteer position. And so I went in front of a panel of police officers and um, went through the interview. I was accepted. And then I went through training and got my pager. And so through being a victim crisis responder, which we would, was more on a level of helping the families, the loved ones that were involved in whatever case was being handled at the time whether it was if they were so distraught that we would help them to make phone calls, you know, even just dialing the phone, making coffee, uh, getting washcloths to help their, their brow, you know, if they were sweating um, stuffed animals to the, the children. And so through those calls, I had gotten to know a couple of the coroners in the different counties. And one of, I had, we had struck up a conversation one day and the coroner was included And he had complimented me on how I was dealing with families and how I would help the families in what way that I could. And also through a lot of the cases, I I seem to be asked many times to help to physically remove the body when there was a death involved as physically, you know, just to help carry the body out. And death had always frightened me because we had had tragedy in our family Uh, with murder and mugging, you know, stabbings and so on. And so death scared me. And, but I was intrigued by it. I was fascinated. So I had thanked him for the compliment and said that if he was ever looking for another deputy to please let me know. And this was what I had for in my background, a little bit of medical. And so about a year later, I got a call from him. He was considering hiring on another deputy which uh, if I was still interested, I could follow him on all of these cases. He would see how I did, how I handled it. 
And after another about nine months of his training and following him on some of the worst cases, of course, they're all bad, most of them, right? Because they range from homicide to suicide to car fatality to drownings, drug overdoses, but they also include people that go to hospitals, emergency rooms, and if they expire under 24 hours, that's when a coroner is called in. So he had offered me the position. I took the position. I got my badge and sworn in and off I went. And so I was still working. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, that's interesting. You mentioned you personally and your family had sudden deaths. You had an experience with trauma, sudden deaths. Can you share a little bit of that? I had one uncle that was, was um, manually strangled. And I don't know actually what the circumstances were, why the person that killed him. Uh, They did find my uncle's car. They found his wallet with his money. So I'm not sure what the motive was. He had gone down to a Southern state to visit his daughter, my cousin, and he was found in his hotel room, manually strangled. And then I had another uncle and it was really quite sad because uh, my mother was born and raised in Ireland. So her sister, my aunt, also from Ireland. Her husband was from Great Britain. And he did not want to come over to the United States because he was thinking of back then, it was like the John Wayne Cowboys, you know, shoot him up and a lot of the Wild West. So they were separated for about 10 years. He stayed over there. My aunt and my cousin, male cousin, came over here and settled in, in the Midwest in a larger city. Anyhow, eventually he did come over and he was a real dapper, kind, soft-spoken man. Within the first year, he was uh, mugged and he was stabbed several times, throat slashed, but he survived for $30. He survived, but then, you know, he had all these medical issues and became a recluse and Uh, lived a few more years. So yes, we've had tragedy. And then like everybody, we all have friends and family that pass away from car fatalities, or I had friends that were hit, you know, from car fatalities. What was your perspective on death before getting into this whole field? I, because I was uh, raised Catholic and not to get into religion, but of course with with Catholics, it's you, when you die, if you're a good person, you go to heaven. So I, I always believed that once you die, that's it. You're done. You go to heaven. But after becoming a deputy coroner and doing that profession for so many years, my whole beliefs and thoughts on what happens once you die has totally changed. It's totally changed. I do believe that once you die, our bodies are left behind, but we still have our souls and the energy and it will continue on. There's levels, there's dimensions. So let's talk a little bit about what happens as a deputy coroner, because again, your background is in government travel. You volunteered. You were primarily, I think, in, in, in interested in volunteering and being there for the families. But what, what happens as a volunteer, as a, um, 
as a deputy coroner, when you arrive on the scene of an unexpected death, which is kind of treated as a crime scene right from the get-go, what, what are the protocols? Well, and when I was a deputy coroner, that was not a volunteer position. That was a paid position through the county. When, yes, every death is considered where a coroner is involved is considered a crime scene. The coroner has possession of the body, whereas the scene itself is under control of the police. And so then in unison, we all work together to uh, investigate the scene and make sure to rule out that there was anything suspicious. So let's say um, there's a death. They find a body in a home. The police, uh, someone calls, the police are there. They then call the coroner. They wait for the coroner to get there. The body is not moved because, again, the coroner has to pronounce the time of death. So then once I would, I'll say, refer to myself. Once I would arrive on scene, I would, uh, of course, be directed to the body. I would uh, pronounce the time of death would go over the body to see if there are any visible markings on the body, check the eye for any like uh, trauma to the the eye. There could be uh, little red dots, which would show that there's trauma. Uh, and then that's why we would draw fluids for toxicology because someone, you know, it may, they, they may not have any visible signs of any struggle or, you know, you look for the lividity, uh, where the pool, once the body, the heart stops and the, pot, the body is laying in one position, the blood will pool to whatever position that body is in. So if you find a body and they've got uh, red, red blotches of blood that have settled, uh, let's say, on their legs, the front of their legs, but yet they're laying on their back, then you know that body must have been moved because that body was dead, the blood stopped, it should have been pooled on the back. So we examined the body. We would take a lot of photos, and then there would be uh, determining whether we're going to have an autopsy or order an autopsy, uh, talk with the family. If they happen to be on scene then, we would, of course, respectfully ask that they stay out of the room while we do the investigation. And then we would, or they would uh, advise if there was not going to be an autopsy, what funeral home they wanted to go to. I would then, once the funeral directors arrived on scene, if there was not going to be an autopsy, they would help me to lift the body, put them into the body bag, bag and tag. I'd fill out all the paperwork uh, and then go through the scene of the investigation for any kind of uh, possibly any illegal narcotics or weapons. And so it was just putting all of the pieces together. Once the body was removed from the scene, if there was not going to be an autopsy, then they'd go to the funeral home and then the funeral directors would take over from that point. We did, as coroners, also sign the death certificates, the cause of death. We would sign as far as cremation, if the body was going to be cremated uh, after 48 hours, there's a 48-hour period that you cannot cremate a body. And within that 48 hours, then it would the, the family has to... S- have authorization or sign authorization for the cremation. Of course, if there's anything suspicious, then that's, that's delayed as well while the, while the investigation is going on. If it happens to be something like a car fatality um, where there are, it can be very gory where there's body parts that are strewn. It's our responsibility to pick up as much of the all, not as much, but all of 
the the human remains so that it all goes together respectfully in the body bag to wherever it's going to go to the autopsy. I can't imagine being placed in that situation. And, and I don't know what, how you were prepared for that. You must remember your first every, you must remember every single case, but the amount of trauma you must have gone through, were you ever provided any counseling? How did you deal with it? No, there was no counseling. We did not have debriefing, at least in the county that I was in. And you're right, it was extremely emotional, physically, mentally, psychologically, because you can't, after these cases, you can't go home and discuss with your family what you just experienced. And when you're hands-on in death, it take, it's a whole different level. It's not like watching a movie on TV. I mean, yes, that can be gory on TV, but when you're there and you're seeing, you're feeling, and you're smelling and the emotions, not only are you dealing with that, that part of the investigation, but you also have to notify loved ones that their, that their loved one has died tragically. And then you are in the throes of their emotional reactions of grief and such. It's just so, so sad. And you take that home with you. And so I would try to keep this real brave front um, and everything was inside me. And that's how eventually I started writing because I had to, I had to put it somewhere. And I, you know, you don't discuss with anybody these cases again because of the confidentiality. And I thought maybe by writing, uh, that would help me. Right. You began, you began journaling, and that is the basis of your book, I See Dead People. Do you think, looking yes. back, that you suffered from post-traumatic stress dis- uh, disorder? Oh, absolutely. I've been told that I have post-traumatic stress, and I've also been told by a chaplain who worked with the county that I worked in that he believes that everybody that works in that capacity or any type of capacity that involves such tragedy and death, we all to some degree have post-traumatic stress. In the meantime, you're divorced, you have two young children. How are you dealing with that? I mean, this is not dinner conversation. How are you dealing with, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to imagine your children talking to mom after a day's work, you know, hey, mom, how did your day go? What do you what do you tell them? You know, uh, God love them. They, my oldest, I have two sons and my oldest son, um, when the book was published, said to me, oh my God, mom, we knew what, I knew what you did, but I didn't realize how much you did. And now it all makes sense. I'm sure in looking back in hindsight, they'd think about the times that I was very quiet or, um, you know, kind of retreated away from wanting to do things because I was I was processing whatever cases I might have been on because I was still working full time in government travel. And then I was working as a deputy coroner, starting going on the pager at like seven o'clock at night on a Friday night. And I many weekends for years, I would be on call until Sunday or, you know, whether it was 24 hours or 48. And so not only was I working, I felt it was my responsibility to make sure that, you know, I still had uh, money coming in and 
again, I wanted to do things for the family. I, I, I don't know if it was that I felt like because the marriage had failed, I wanted to do something that I felt was was a good thing that was helping others, maybe others that were dealing with, uh, well, with tragedies. And that would get my mind off of the fact that I had a failed marriage. I was now a single mom. You know, I came from uh, a family, parents, both parents, loving environment. And so I felt bad about that. But I wanted to give back to the community and help people. I'm a helper. I'm empathetic. So how did that, I I don't know what your prior experiences were with death were. How did that feel the first time? You saw a dead body, you had to touch a dead body, you had to smell death. Walk me through that. Yes. Um, and I also wanted to, I'm sorry, I was going to mention before also, you would ask me about my sons. They were very intuitive to my emotions and they also, which is probably further we'll discuss, but um the spiritual part of it that I believe that our, our souls continue on in the energy. They were also dealing with spirits, but um, the first time that I did experience death firsthand as a deputy coroner was a suicide. And this is a horrible comparison, but this is all that I can think of in my, when I think of it is, you know, the wizard of Oz where the house, it's in black and white, and she's up in the air, right? And the house is spinning around, but it's all black and white. And then the house lands, the door opens, and it's all in color. It's vibrant color. For me, driving to that scene, everything was in color, although I was like, oh, my God, you know, my shoulders tense, wondering what was like, what was going to happen now? What was this experience going to be like? And once I walked through the door of this, the crime scene or the scene, everything stood still. Everything went black and white. My jaw dropped. All I could say was because they had the body, they pulled him. He had committed suicide by a high power rifle and um, had in a, like a crawl space. And so they'd already pulled his body out and he was on the floor and his face was gone. And I just, my jaw dropped. I was in shock. I mean, it was like my, what my eyes were seeing, my mind, I couldn't grasp, you know, it was so surreal. And they all knew that the police on scene, and then I was still training. So I was with my boss and they gave me those few seconds to absorb what I was looking at after I'd said, oh my God, maybe waiting to see if I would turn around and, you know, run out (laughs) or if I'd, I'd stay on scene, but then everything came back into motion and I followed direction. It was just, I kept looking at this person and my emotions were running amok because I was thinking uh, how, how frightening this was, how scary, but also thinking of that person. I never lost sight that every dead body was someone's loved one, someone's mother, father, sister, brother. And I was always very respectful on the scene with every decedent because I would want to be treated that way. And I would want my loved ones to be handled with respect and dignity. And so then I just kept focusing on the fact that this was someone's loved one and wanted to make sure through the investigation that it was ruled out that there wasn't any foul play and they didn't die prematurely at the hands of another. All right. We'll take a quick time out. Donna Frankart is the former deputy 
coroner in the Midwest and the author of I See Dead People. Stay with us. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. For nearly nine years, Donna Frankart was a deputy coroner who worked medical legal death investigations, which are those involving suspicious, violent, unexplained, or unexpected deaths, lacking access to a structured debriefings. Frankart turned to journaling as a way of privately unpacking the profound grief she faced and presenting her own mental well-being. As she did, she found herself in a conundrum of perplexing relationships with both the living and the dead. With her book, I've Seen Dead People, Donna shares her unfiltered thoughts and emotions as she investigates a world most of us cannot imagine. A world Frankart was drawn to out of a genuine desire to help others during their darkest hours. Welcome back. Donna Frankart is with us, former deputy coroner in the Midwest and the author of I See Dead People. When did some of the uh, deceased start hitching a ride home with you? Well, uh, it was probably after that I started noticing things were happening on scene and realizing, wow, this is a bit strange. You know, I, I think there's more going on here that's from the afterlife. Had a, and it's in the book, uh, one case that I was on where there was a young man and he he had had medical issues it ended up it was not anything suspicious it was just you know through his his medical condition and he uh was a wiccan so he was in and i i'm not really into that but the the witches and you know i respect them for what they do but in looking for a next of kin we found his ex-wife his ex-wife asked if we'd noticed the altar and we had noticed an altar. And then she said that he, you know, that they practiced this and wanted to know if they could have his skull to carve his skull. But anyhow, so he was laying on the floor and I wanted to draw blood for toxicology. And there were probably about five officers standing around me. And I 
got down on my haunches and I was just about to insert the needle in for blood and my pager went off. And of course I'm jumpy and I jumped and I, you know, tried not to fall into it, which I didn't fall into him, answered the page. That was, that just happened that the pager went off and we, everybody just kind of chuckled like, Ooh, you know, didn't expect that. Went back to the, the body, got down on my haunches, went to insert the needle again and there was a rotary phone on the wall and it started screeching, ringing. And we kind of jumped and the lieutenant grabbed the phone off the wall and said, hello. I was like, hello, hello, hello. And there was no answer. So we just kind of shrugged. He put it back on the wall. Of course, I jumped back again. So again, I tried to insert the needle. Same thing happened. The phone started ringing on the wall. About that time, coins started appearing at the side of this decedent's head. And one of the officers said, did you notice those coins down by his head before? Well, no one had seen coins, but they were starting to appear. They chuckled a little bit. And I said, I wouldn't laugh because he's here and he's watching you. You need to be you know, respectful. And I was quite serious about that. Well, in trying to insert the needle again at that point, uh, I was able to complete it. They were, and, and I, they were, I was able to complete it. We just wanted to get everything wrapped up because then everybody at that point was a bit unnerved as to what was happening. So things like that. Uh, Then the spirit started following me home. Now I was told through, and this was within a year or two that I was noticing uh, my son's orbs would bounce off their curtains or I saw the shadow man a couple of times. One time was in our home. I thought in the middle of the night I had to, go to the bathroom and I uh, kept the lights off because I didn't want to acclimate to the light. And when I opened the door, when I was coming out of the bathroom, I thought my son, they were back in high school at that time. I thought it was odd. They wouldn't try to pull a prank on me in the middle of the night. But again, my mind wasn't putting two and two together. I smiled like, Oh, ha, okay. You scared me. You're standing at the doorway here, but it didn't move. So then I put my hand out and it went right through the spirit and that's when I'm, you know, yay, <laughs> ran back to my, my, my bedroom. But things started happening more and more and more uh, to all of us, including my sons. Because at first I thought, am I imagining things, even though things were happening on scene, but now they're happening at home. My sons were experiencing and it continued on through the years. Now, I believed at the time through the years that, okay, this is all part of this position never thought about it before. I was never one to search and seek for the, you know, the paranormal films or getting into the spirits because I'm, I'm a chicken, right? It scares me, but it makes sense that if you're dealing with people that have died, passed away, they didn't expect to pass away. Uh, they're confused is what I was told by mediums. They're confused. They're dead. You don't know what to do. They're not ready to go. And so because I was very compassionate at the scene, this is what I've been told, uh, that I was very compassionate at the scene, which with every uh, decedent or everybody decedent, I should say, that they would follow me home. Most of them did not cross over the threshold, but many of them did. And I still, it's become actually more and more active since I've been talking about this more, That the, now that the book's been published uh, because I'm talking about the decedents and I have to be very respectful and it can be a very frightening place to be if you don't know how to, if you're not respectful to the dead. 
And some people may laugh at that, but until you've witnessed firsthand, you need to know that you need to honor and respect the dead because they are around us. When you say they haven't crossed over the threshold, what what do you mean by that? Meaning that they're almost in like a limbo, their souls, you know, you go off to the next dimension, depending on what you believe in. It's either there's so many dimensions, you're off to the next dimension, or you're going to heaven. Uh, so some of them, their souls aren't ready to go and they're confused. I'm so, learning along the way. I was, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to ask. I mean, would they, when they hitched a ride, basically home with you, would they suddenly, you would wake up in the middle of the night and there they were a full on apparition. I've had that. Yes. I had one right high on my back. Now <laughs> I had a tank top on. It was in the middle of the summer. My sons were still in high school. Uh, my younger son had come through the back door. I was at the stove and I was cooking and he said to me, who wrote high? On? And I'm like, what? And he said, here, I'll take a picture. He pulled out his cell phone. He took a picture and sure. And I still have that picture. Something had written high on my back. After that had happened, I was very unnerved because I thought I didn't believe you're supposed to touch the living. Right. So I'd gone to a medium and the medium had told me uh, the person, the decedent that had actually left high on my back and told helped him to cross over and that's where a lot of the mediums or there's some there's psychics there's mediums there's shamans the ones that connect with the spirits that will help them to cross over i was just at a a medium a quantum healer a few weeks ago and i had two attachments that he had to help cross over because i've been told in the last well, since the book was published, I've been talking to people all over the world. Uh, I had a doctor call me about a month and a half ago. She was going to, and she also connects with spirits and she's in a different state. And she told me that her spirit guides had reached out or had told her in big capital letters and exclamations that she needed to get a hold of me because I was like this beacon of light. And all of these spirits are attracted to me and they're coming to me and they all have a story to tell. And if I don't know how to protect myself, that it can be very, it can be a dangerous place to be because I don't, again, I'm, I'm not a medium. She had asked me why I was looking for a job because I was actually looking for different jobs. And she said, you already have a job. You're a medium. And I said, no, I'm not a medium. I don't have spirits come to me and, you know, give me messages that I should give to the living. And she said, Donna, there's all kinds of mediums but you are an open portal to these spirits that are coming to you. Let's talk about how this book came about, because again, you didn't, you didn't have access to a psychologist. You weren't being debriefed. You were seeing all of this trauma, this horror. There was no one there for you to help you sort of, you know, deal with all of this stuff. So you began journaling. That's how the book began, right? Yes. And I want to say that, you know, people out there will ask, well, why didn't you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a therapist? Well, I was working full time and part time, but I was a single parent. And so with the insurance that I had, it might 
cover a few sessions, but I felt like this needed a lot more than just a couple of sessions. Then it would have been out of pocket. And so I was more focused on making sure that I was paying my bills and, you know, raising my my sons in the best way that I could. So I started journaling and I felt by, and this would be when I'd be by myself in my room or behind the closed door, I felt like it was purging, getting it on paper because I uh, not so much wanted to write a clinical book about forensics, but I wanted to bring into it the emotions that I was going through, how it affected me and how the families handled their emotions in losing a loved one tragically or unexpectedly. And so through that writing, and this went on for several years, like I said, I felt like I was purging. It was getting it on paper and I was able to process it, hoping I could then compartmentalize and maybe leave it behind. But in all honesty, I don't think you can ever leave it behind. It's always those memories and those scenes are always going to be with you. I mean, to this day now, if I hear the sirens going off or, um, I'm around friends that are are in that, you know, the police or fire department, wherever. I'm almost missing being out there in, and helping people. So I felt that by writing this book, and it was mainly, like I said, for healing. But then I was uh, introduced by a friend who is in the film industry, Jeff Ohm. He's very well known. He worked on the Revenant, Titanic, uh, Fifth Element, many, many films, Shrek. And he introduced me to um, a friend and a, an associate or someone else that works on film, someone else, I shouldn't say someone else, but uh, my publisher who is Gary Revel, and he owns um, Jongler Books, Jongler Film and Music. And so uh, he read my book, they believed in my book, and so it was published. And I was amazed at how many people came forward and were interested. But when you think about it, death is a very taboo subject. Either people are afraid to talk about it. They, even though it's inevitable, we're all going to die. But everybody is curious. They're afraid or they want to know. And so it's just a common denominator amongst the human race that we all are going to die. And we all hope that it's going to be. Um, more than what some of us might think it is. And I, I was hoping that I had a takeaway in my book. So I tried to think of something positive when I was writing these. At the end of every chapter, I had a positive, even though there was so much sadness and grief. I wanted to get out there that, yes, life is precious and embrace the moments. Be thankful that you wake up every morning. Watch out and look look over and take care of your elders and your neighbors and be kind when you can. And uh, monetary things are wonderful, but you can't take them with you. So enjoy the vibrance of a flower. And I know it sounds cliche, but, you know, the wind as it blows against your face. Enjoy those moments because we never know when our last moment is here on Earth. I, I agree. I think ultimately death is... Really, when you think about it, the only topic, the only subject, because we all want to know what happens after we die, which leads into a discussion of what are we, who are we, why are we here? It's the only subject ultimately that matters. Everything leads up to that moment of death. Uh, How did your, we just have a, a minute here before we break away here, but how did your perception of death change through this job 
to this career? Oh, boy, has it changed. I am no longer afraid of death. However, I am also learning and trying to cope with the many spirits that are coming to me, trying to learn how to handle it. Um, It's very frightening. And so I say to everyone out there that thinks it's great, it's fun, you know, let's go on these ghost hunts, be respectful, because it can be very, it can be a very, very dangerous world to be in unless you know what you're dealing with, and you're prepared. So but I am, I'm looking at it as being respectful to the spirits, I do believe that our loved ones that have passed on are waiting for us when we transition over. And I'm embracing life every moment that I'm here. Wow, I am enjoying this conversation with Donna Franker. So close to death, has smelt death, touched death. And again, this is ultimately, for most of us, we're all heading in this direction. This is ultimately the only, to me, subject that matters. Where are we going after we die? What's, what's beyond the veil? I wanted to ask you, you can't be the only person in this field, deputy coroner, coroner, pathologist, medical examiners, who are grappling with this issue. I don't know if you have conventions, conferences, but you must meet with other people in your field. Is this like the little secret that nobody wants to talk about publicly? Do they all have these experiences? Well, and this is my opinion and my experiences working with people in the death industry, at least within the people in the community that I worked in, Uh, I do believe that it's happening all over to many, but I I think my opinion that they don't want to talk about it because, number one, maybe if they're funeral directors, they don't want to frighten people. They don't want people that don't believe in the spirits, uh, think that there's something off about them, you know, but mainly not want to frighten people. But it's happening. Ever since the book published, it's been very interesting. I've had people reach out to me from all over the world. I had one coroner uh, who's in a southern state. Her husband is a police officer, and she reached out to me, and we talked quite a bit. We've become friends. But she was saying to me, oh, my God, yes, I, we have so much activity. And I, I was like, oh, tell me about it. Well, she said that every night her husband has to have a fan on the, in the bedroom because this, the footprints of the spirit, they must have wooden floors. They hear the footprints about one o'clock in the morning coming down the hallway, and then it comes into their bedroom and sits down on their bed, and the bed will move down. <laughs> and I said to her, oh, my God, how can you handle that? I mean, do you ever think about selling the house or, you know, seeing how to get rid of it. And she said, well, we can't sell it because it was her husband's, it, it, it was handed down through the generations. So it was like, like the great grandparents, grandparents owned, and then her, his parents, and now they own it. And so he doesn't know if it's one of his loved ones that have passed over, or if either of them have brought home a spirit from one of the death scenes that were, that they were on, but they deal with that on a nightly basis. basis and they have for years And then I had a forensic uh, technician out of Great Britain reach out to me. And, of course, he, uh, in telling me that he enjoyed my book, and he could also relate to it because he works in the morgue, right, with autopsies, doing autopsies. And he said, oh, yeah, we have things that are being pushed off the shelves all the time. You know, it's like matter-of-factly. 
And I, I can say that locally, the people that I was uh, dealing with, working with in the death industry, we would talk about um, the spirits and the things that they would do to try to keep all the goodness in the funeral homes, whether it was uh, lavender that they put along the windowsills. And, and I've had so many that have reached out to me in different professions, mainly in the medical field or in the death industry, that do connect with spirits. And it's like we have this commonality and it's drawing us all together from all over the world. It's amazing. It's like, wow, how did I get into this? How did I get so into this? But I, I'm looking at it that it, it's just I'm here hoping that I can share my experiences with the world for them to not fear death and to also know how to handle and respect the spirit world. So when someone passes and they pass unexpectedly, in other words, they're not lingering, they're not waiting to die, they don't have an, a, a terminal illness, and they die suddenly, those factors seem to be kind of crucial in terms of, let's say, a visitation or a, 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 a spirit coming forth and, and, and crossing or you're encountering what? a spirit, let's say. Can you give me an example of someone who, I mean, you went to a scene of an unexpected death and that person came to you. Did they, did they communicate? Did they reveal anything to you about their death? Maybe clues that might've been important as to why they passed? Well, and this is the thing that I'm learning how to handle. As I had said to that doctor when she'd said, well, you already have a job, you're a medium. And I said, no, I'm not a medium. I don't have these messages from spirit world that I'm supposed to relay to loved ones here on earth. And she said, there are so many different types of mediums. What's happening to me is these spirits come to me and uh, they're there. And I think they're waiting for me to say something or help them. But my reaction is I, I panic, <laughs> you know, and I retreat. And so that's what I'm learning how to handle if there's any way that it can help them. So, I, yes, I have had, I've had them uh, talk to me, call out my name. Um, they mainly appeared in front of me and then I freak out and they disappear. I don't know if I scare them back, but, or they don't want to scare me anymore uh, at that moment because I'm trying to catch myself from having a, a, a heart attack. Um, but I'm not getting the messages, but I've been told that I need to learn how to help them to cross over, whether it's that I tell them I'm here for you, I'll walk by your side, and then mentally I'm supposed to help them to walk to the light, to, you know, go to the lightness, go, you need to cross over. I did have an attach, I had two attachments that I had, uh, Someone um, helped cross over two weeks ago, and neither of them died tragically. So there are people here on Earth. Now, one of them, um, he didn't die, die tragically. He was, an old, he was an elderly man, but apparently he had, actually, I knew him. He was a family member. He had uh, gone through a divorce. He felt guilty about that because he was raised Catholic, Irish Catholic, you know, and he didn't think that he was going to make it into heaven. And so he was afraid that when he died, he was never going to make it there. And he happened to be one of them that was attached to me that this medium helped him to cross over. 
new things about this person that I'm related to that no one would know. He doesn't even live in the same country. I'm talking about um, like his name, his his uh, name from birth, which he was never even his death certificate didn't have his actual name. So the guy couldn't have the person couldn't have Googled and found out this personal information on my uncle who he was, but he needed that crossing over. So it's not all, I, I, I honestly don't have the answer to that yet. I'm still learning, trying to understand why, if it's just that I've opened up this portal and they feel the compassion coming from me. And so whether something happened when they were living that they need direction it's not all tragedy donna what's happening with the book again plans to make this into a motion picture well um jeff ohm who is the director will be the director he's been reaching out to uh, agents for a-list actors to um, take on some of the major roles i'm also writing the second book the edition or the sequel i guess is that what you call it um, which is going to be um, talking all about all of the paranormal activity that I'm dealing with now and how I'm hand coping with it. How do we get a copy of I See Dead People? I've Seen Dead People is available on Amazon. It's in hardcover, paperback, e-reader, large print. And I also am now, I just signed a contract, or we did, with Jongler Publishing, uh, and Tander to do audio, which I don't have a targeted date yet, hoping that within the new year it'll be out in audio. So I'm excited about that as well. Fantastic. Donna, you're doing the Lord's work. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 